What a fun morning with baptisms and the VBS program, and really just a conclusion to a really fun week. Uh, VBS, if anything, is just a blast, and one of the things that's so great about it is to see this army of volunteers in our church uh, just pour themselves into a common cause, which is teaching our young ones the gospel, and uh, seeing them build relationships and uh, just band together to pull off a really, really good event. Fun, fun week. Also, uh, appreciated the two men that have filled the pulpit the last two Sundays. Uh, Jason Oaks, two weeks ago, I thought did a great job teaching on the authority of God's Word. I hope you were blessed by that. And then, by all accounts, Yakuba Sedu and his testimony and message on John 3.16, uh, I've heard nothing but good things about that. So, appreciate uh, those two men filling in so, so well. Uh, my family had a great time in Colorado. I don't know if it was relaxing at all, but we had fun uh, and enjoyed ourselves there in Estes Park, and uh, it's been a good week to be back with VBS rolling and everything else. But I'm certainly excited to resume our study of Mark's Gospel. We're at the end of the sixth chapter, so despite the two-week break, we are making some progress in this book, and after today, we'll have six chapters down, about ten chapters left to go. Uh, But since we've had just this two-week hiatus, I should probably take a little time to review, sort of reset things as we move ahead. So if you go all the way back to the first chapter, we're not going to do an extensive review, but if you go to chapter 1, verse 1, you remember that the reason for this gospel is for it to be just that, is is for it to be a gospel, a declaration of good news. Mark wants anyone who reads this account to know that Jesus Christ is the Savior, the Son of God. And at least the first half of the book is revealing that gospel truth by displaying the awesome kingly authority of Jesus Christ. All along the way, authority is a major theme. Authority over teaching, over disease, over uncleanliness, over the Sabbath day, over forgiveness, over nature, over demons, and on and on and on we could go. And you remember that chapter 6 starts with Jesus returning to Nazareth. We covered this a few weeks ago. Returning to Nazareth, his hometown. And he goes to the synagogue there at Nazareth, and when he stands up to teach on the Sabbath day, the text tells us that he's rejected. The folks in Nazareth say, this is, this, is this not the carpenter? His own family, people he grew up with say, uh, what is this? What are the works that he's doing from, from his hands? Who is this guy? They reject his teaching. They reject his power. And not only do they reject him, he's actually slandered. They refer to him as Mary's son. Remember that? And now what did that mean? It meant maybe your father is Joseph, maybe not. We, we don't even know. That's why we call you Mary's son. Because to us, you're sort of a man without a father. And in that culture, to be a man without a father meant you're a man without an identity. You're, you're nobody. You're illegitimate, really. So following his rejection at Nazareth, Jesus sends out the twelve. Two by two, he sends them. He gives them authority to teach and to cast out unclean spirits. They go out for weeks, maybe even months. And they're going out with strict orders from Jesus about how they're to carry out ministry. And after their ministry tour of Galilee is completed. They reconvene with Jesus. Jesus wants to then get them uh, away for a time of rest and retreat. Maybe he wants to debrief, sort of find out what they learned along the way. And they set out in a boat 
away from Capernaum. Capernaum had been their ministry headquarters, so they're leaving Capernaum. And as they come ashore, another massive crowd is waiting for them. So Jesus suspends their retreat. He can't help it. He sees this huge group of people, this this group of people that the text describes as those who are like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord's response to their lack of shepherding care is that he teaches them. The text says that he taught them many things. So he didn't tend to their physical needs first. His great act of compassion to this people was that he taught them many things. So many things that it managed to get late in the day and they haven't even realized it. So late in the day that they're in a remote place. These are factors which caused the disciples to come and to interrupt Jesus' teaching. And I think thoughtfully they point out Okay, Jesus, this huge group of people is going to be hungry. We need to send them away so they can find food. And at this advice, Jesus says to his disciples, Okay, you give them something to eat. And I love that verse. Jesus is saying, You 12 guys are worried about something I'm not worried about. You give them something to eat. They think Jesus is joking. It's going to take 200 denarii, so like eight or nine months' wages to feed this crowd causing Jesus to take over. He says, okay, what do we have on hand? He organizes the crowd and in, in, in getting them into groups. And he says, okay, fellas, I'm going to bless this bread, and I want you to come and get it so you can distribute it to the people. And that's what happens. From five loaves, five biscuits, really, and two fish, two sardines, Jesus feeds a crowd probably in upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people. And the text shares a great detail there toward the end of that account. It says, after they ate, they were satisfied. Which means they could not eat anymore. He creates this bread from barley that had never grown out of the ground, fish that had never been caught out of the sea, food straight from the hands of the Lord God. Needless to say, it was the best meal these people had ever eaten And the text says they ate until they were satisfied, literally gorged. So now our text for today immediately follows this miracle feeding. The disciples have cleaned up the scraps. There's precisely the right amount for each of them. Twelve baskets is left over. Each of them gets a basket. And then verse 45 of chapter 6. Let's read. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark writes, Immediately. There's our word again. Immediately shows up 40-some-odd times in this book. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to, a, to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him, 
and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. So I've broken down this narrative into four parts. You see it there in your notes. The Savior who sins, the Savior who comes, the Savior who reveals, and the Savior who cares. But first, obviously what we have here is one of Jesus' most famous miracles. The miracle and this particular miracle and the feeding of the 5,000 are probably the most widely known miracles of Jesus. It's an amazing scene we have before us today. An amazing scene with a hugely important point. Yet in the 18th and 19th century, even bleeding into today, there arose some thinking that this event could not have possibly happened ever. No way. See, there was an anti-supernaturalism that had crept into the church, sort of an enlightened rationalism, if that means anything to you. And, th- and that rationalism tried to explain away the miracles in the Bible. It was similar to the approach of Thomas Jefferson. Remember Jason Oak's illustration from a couple of weeks ago? Jefferson, who took his Bible and he kept, he liked the ethical teaching of Jesus, but he literally cut out the miracles. Just couldn't believe it. And the problem with Jefferson and things like the Jesus Seminar and and liberal Bible scholars that don't believe in miracles is this. To dismiss this miracle is really to dismiss Jesus. It's to dismiss the real Jesus. And that's a great irony because those liberal groups think dismissing the supernatural is a way to get to the real Jesus. But to dismiss this miracle is to completely undo why the miracle was done in the first place. It's a massive, massive mistake. Reminds me of the story of the duck hunter and his new dog. A duck hunter needed a new bird dog. And during his search, he found an amazing Labrador that could actually walk on water to retrieve the ducks. Shocked by his find, he immediately purchased the dog. His favorite hunting partner was a classic pessimist. You probably know this guy, right? A man who never saw the positive side of anything. So our new dog owner decides that the first person he's going to show his dog's ability to was this pessimist friend of his. Surely this guy would, would be amazed by his new dog. So he invited his friend to hunt with him. First day of the season, they waited there by the shore. A flock of ducks flew by. They fired, a duck fell, The dog responded, jumped toward the water, and sure enough, did not even sink, but instead walked across the water, retrieved the bird, never getting more than even his paws wet. The friend watched the dog carefully, didn't say a single word. All morning long went the same way. They'd shoot a duck, the duck would walk across the water, he'd retrieve, or the dog would walk across the water, retrieve the duck. Finally, they got their limit and they headed out. And despite watching this dog retrieve numerous ducks, the friend had not commented on the uncanny ability of this animal at all. So on the drive home, the hunter asked him, Did you notice anything funny about my dog? I sure did, responded his friend. He can't swim. I told you you know that guy, right? 
But I assure you, Jesus did not walk on water because he couldn't swim. You know, to say that is to miss the point of the story entirely. To say he was really on the bank and the, and the disciples, they just couldn't tell. It was a dark night and there was a storm. To say that their eyes deceived them. All these sort of rational explanations that people come up with, they completely miss the point of the story. So let's work through this passage so we don't miss this point of the story. Let's start there with the Savior who sins. From the outset, we observe a sense of urgency in Jesus. And his urgency is to get the disciples back into the boat. Verse 45, immediately he sent them to the other side. So they had come from Capernaum to this place where the feeding of the 5,000 took, took place. Jesus taught the crowd, he fed them. Now he's sending the disciples back toward Capernaum again. And the question that goes along with that is, why is he so urgently sending them ahead of him? And we can only speculate, but I think the account of this event that we have in John's gospel helps us tremendously. The feeding of the 5,000 exists in all four gospels. It's the only other miracle besides the resurrection that's in all four gospels. The walking on the water exists in three of the four Gospels And John's Gospel, I think, is immensely helpful in understanding some of the nuances surrounding the story. But let me read John 6.14, because I think this helps us understand Jesus' sense of urgency and getting the disciples out of there. When the people saw the sign that he had done, when, when they saw that he had you know, fed the 5,000, or the 15,000, however many were there, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. There it is. There's our reason. It was the pressure of the crowd to make Jesus king. Jesus has shown that he could heal them. He could teach them like none other. He had power over demons, the spiritual realm. He had power over uncleanness. And now he shows that he can feed them. So this is a generous, benevolent, powerful king. Jesus knew they desired a king, a real king, not a Herod type of king, not the emperor in Rome, but a king. And he knew the disciples desired that kind of king as well. He knew that they would want to be the ones close to Jesus, the ones sitting at his right hand and his left in the kingdom. So he sends the twelve on. He gets them out of the frenzy to make him their earthly king. That's the first reason he sends them ahead. But he also has something else in mind. And we see from the text that Jesus wanted to spend time in prayer. Three times in the book of Mark, we see Jesus retreat to pray. And in, in all three of those occasions, it's over a crisis of popularity. The first time is chapter 1. He's started his ministry there in Capernaum. He's taught in the synagogue. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. And now throngs of people are coming to him for healing. So there, as day one of his public ministry concludes, the text says he leaves to be by himself. That's the first time we see Jesus retreat to pray. The second one is here in chapter 6. His popularity has reached its peak. They want to make him king. So he retreats again to a mountain to pray. Later in chapter 14, 
we're going to see it's the final days of Jesus' life. It's the Passion Week. And he leaves the upper room with his disciples, and he goes to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, because he wants to be by himself so he can pray. All three occasions, he is alone, it's at night, and he's in a desolate place. And the question that runs alongside that is, why does he retreat to pray? This is one of my daughter's most puzzling questions about the Bible. If Jesus is God, why does he pray? Isn't that a bit redundant? Well, just because Jesus prays, it doesn't mean he is any less God. The prayers of Jesus are, I think, a great place to process the truth about the Trinity. That the three persons in the Godhead are not each other. Rather, they are distinct but unified members of the triune God. Equal, unified, yet diverse. There's some rich theology in thinking through the Trinity and even thinking through how it's implied in Jesus' prayers. And as mind-blowing as that can be, I think at the same time, his prayers are very similar to our prayers. They're just moments to convene and commune with the Father, to appeal to God for his will to be done in our lives, to resist, in Jesus' case, the temptation to think that the kingdom of God could be established in any other way besides the cross. His focused retreats to pray are intentional, necessary moments to calibrate his heart with the mission of God. That's why he's praying. And no doubt he's praying for the 12. He's praying that these 12 men that he is training, that they will see him and that they will worship him, that they'll not see him the way the crowds are seeing him as just a means to an end as a way to be liberated from Rome? No, it's bigger than that. There's a bigger enemy than Rome. Jesus wants to free people from sin and from death. He's got real liberation on his mind, not just an oppressive government. So he sends the crowd away, sends the disciples away, so he can retreat and spend time in prayer. So through prayer... Jesus can recommit himself to the mission of the Father. And this raises a huge point of application for us, a huge point of application. If Jesus needs to stop and pray, don't you think you need to stop and pray? And I'm not here to shame you about your commitment to prayer. No way. Prayer can be really hard. I agree with Martin Luther. If you want to humble a man, ask him about his prayer life. But if Jesus Christ sought intimate focused hours of prayer. Don't you think that that at least something like that is necessary in your own life? It has to be, doesn't it? It has to be. So the question that comes with that is, well, then how do I do it? How do I become a more intentional prayer? Well, I don't have a formula. I don't have some slick strategy or even a book to hand you. I think you just start by praying. It's like your lungs when you start doing cardio or your muscles when you start lifting weights. It's hard at first, and you wonder what on earth you're doing, but over time, you stick with it, and you grow more consistent, and your capacity grows, and your capacity grows, and pretty soon you're surprising yourself with this impulse to always be praying. Let's keep moving. That's the Savior who sins. Let's look at the second point, the Savior who comes. Verse 47 says, by evening, 
So somewhere in the range of 6 to 9 p.m. is what it means by by evening. The boat was out on the sea. Some of your versions say the boat was in the midst of the sea. That means it was out in the middle of the sea. The book of John, again, tells us that the boat was three or four miles from shore with this incident. They were simply supposed to cross over to the other side, go back toward Capernaum, but they end up in the middle of the sea. How? Why? Those guys, you know, they could handle a boat. Most of them were fishermen. They knew the, they knew the north end of the Sea of Galilee, like the back of their hand. This, this shouldn't be a problem. Well, verse 48 says, the wind was against them. Again, the Sea of Galilee is in a bowl. It's almost 700 feet below sea level. When the wind picks up, conditions can get really, really rough inside this basin of a sea. And so these guys are fighting this headwind, and it's pushed them out to the middle of the lake. And as you think about this fact, as you think about it with our first point in mind, that Jesus sent them ahead, you realize that Jesus has sent them into a storm. He has sent them into this. But notice, verse 48, he sees them. He saw they were struggling. They were straining against the oars, says one of your versions. And we have Jesus. He's high up on one of the surrounding mountains. He's up above the sea, and either naturally or supernaturally, I'm not sure, he sees his disciples struggling against this headwind. Alone on the land, Jesus is fully aware of their situation. He's got tabs on them. In fact, he sent them into all this. And what's he do? Does he come immediately to their rescue? Does he, does he turn the wind off? No. He waits. Perhaps he prays some more. Perhaps he, he, he mentions them by name individually. Maybe he just watches them for a really long time. I, I don't know. I just know that he waits. How do I know he waits? Verse 48 says, Then about the fourth watch of the night, so that's sometime between 3 a.m., and 6 a.m. Remember, he initially saw them during the evening, the hours of 6 to 9 p.m. At that point, just barely into the trip, they're already in the middle of the sea. They're straining and they're struggling against this headwind. Verse 48 jumps to the fourth watch of the night. That's the time of night where it's so late, it's actually early, 4 a.m.-ish. And what that means is for somewhere in the neighborhood of seven hours, Jesus lets these disciples struggle against this headwind. It's a long time. Then verse 48 says, he comes to them. He sees them, and he comes to them. We have a Savior who comes to us. Listen, I, I don't know what you're going through in your life right now, but in a room this size, there's plenty of you they're feeling some kind of strong headwind in your life. You've got some kind of storm that you are stuck in. It might be a chronic illness. It might be a child with a disability. It might be a son or, or a daughter who's not following Christ. It might be a tough relationship with your spouse or a financial situation or opposition at work or just a, just a spiritual dryness I don't know, we've, but, but we've all got some kind of headwind, don't we? And some of us have been straining for a long time. Listen, Jesus sees you. He knows your situation. He knows you're struggling, losing strength perhaps. Don't lose heart. Don't lose 
heart. He's interceding for you. He will come to you. And he has come to these disciples, and he's walking, crazily enough, walking on the sea, which brings us to the third point, the Savior who reveals. The Savior who reveals. The most curious phrase in this whole narrative is the end of verse 48, that he meant to pass by them. And within that phrase is the key to understanding this miracle. He meant to pass by them. That does not mean he meant to pass them by, like the fast lane on the interstate. Not what it means. Jesus' intent was not to disregard them or leave them behind. Don't confuse it for that. The language is actually rooted in the Old Testament. There's a repeated way in the Old Testament that God revealed his physical presence, and he did it by passing by. One of those instances is Exodus 33. Exodus 33, we have Moses. Moses saying to God, Show me your glory. Please show me your glory. And God said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass by you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So in light of this amazing story that was one of the most well-known in all of Judaism, Mark is very deliberately saying to us in verse 48, Jesus' intention to pass by them was to proclaim his divinity to them. His meaning to pass by them was a proclamation of lordship. This passing by the boat was to demonstrate that Jesus wasn't a figure like Moses who would lead the Israelites to freedom, which is what the crowds were thinking. No, Jesus is the God revealed to Moses. And instead of hiding in the cleft of the rock, protected from the white-hot glory of the Lord, these disciples, they are seeing him face to face as he passes by. As he passes by, oh, by the way, walking on the water. Only God walks on water. Only God walks on the sea. Job 9, write Job 9 in your notes. Job is saying to his friends, he's talking about God, he says, Who alone stretched out the heavens? Who alone trampled the waves of the sea? Who made the stars and the chambers of the south? Who does great things by searching out and marvelous things beyond number? Behold, verse 11, he passes by me, yet I see him not. Job is saying, I know God is powerful. I know he is the sustaining power behind all creation. His existence is revealed in all that's been made. Job is saying, I really want to see him. I want him to pass by me, not just in the natural world, not just through general revelation. I want to see see him in the flesh. The disciples are seeing what Job never got to see. They're seeing what Moses was hidden from seeing God. Need more proof of this? Read what he says as he passes them by. He says, take heart. It is I. It is I. It's a funny phrase. It doesn't translate well into English. It's the phrase, ego a me. It's the Old Testament name for the Lord. I am, is what he's saying. Jesus says, take heart. I am. I am the Lord. Just like Exodus 33, I will make my glory pass before you, pass by you, and proclaim to you my name, the Lord. 
Same phrase there in Exodus 33. Ego e me, the Lord, I am. So this happens, and they are astounded. Why are they so utterly astounded? Verse 51 tells us, because before they had not understood about the loaves. When Jesus fed the 5,000, they didn't didn't get it. They didn't understand that he was God. They're still thinking he's a human prophet and a human Messiah. They're still thinking he's like Moses or like David or like the prophet Elijah, maybe like John the Baptist who has just come before him. His ability to create food to feed a crowd of 20,000 people, that was a miracle that the disciples were putting in the wrong category. They didn't realize what was being displayed when he created all that bread and all that fish, they weren't understanding that Jesus was displaying his divine ability. They didn't get it. They were not astounded at that miracle. And the text tells us why. Because their hearts were hard. But now he's done a work to soften their hearts. He's passed by them. He's explicitly revealed his lordship by walking on the sea, proclaiming that he is the I am. He's the Lord of heaven. And so now they are astounded. You might ask, well, how do we know that their hearts still aren't hard? How do we know that, you know, they didn't get it at the feeding? How how do we know they're getting it here? Again, John's gospel helps us. If you read this account in the fourth gospel, when when they get to shore, Jesus ends up teaching again. The people first show up And John tells us that the people want breakfast. You know, he's given them dinner the night before, and now they show up wanting breakfast. Typical. Well, Jesus denies them that. He denies them that, goes right to teaching, and he delivers what's known as the bread of life discourse. I am the bread of life. That should sound familiar to you. And as he delivers this message, it's found in chapter 6 of John's gospel, it says that many who had been following him left. They just stopped following him. Their response to the bread of life discourse was, this teaching is really hard. So they leave. And as the crowd is leaving, Jesus turns to the twelve, and he says, what about you guys? Are you going to leave too? And Peter's response is great. Peter says, Lord, where would we go? He's speaking for the twelve. Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's Peter's response. Essentially, Jesus, we're, we're dead in the water without you. We got nothing. We realize where this gets us. Where would we go? God, through this miracle of walking on the sea, had done a work in their heart, and while the others... The others who left, they were disappointed in the words that Jesus spoke. The disciples believed. They began to understand that the coming of Jesus is about eternal life, not earthly life. That his is an eternal kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. So they said, we're not going anywhere. We believe. We believe in you. We believe you're the Holy One of God. We believe that you have come to provide eternal life. And they would waffle a little bit on this later as the story moves on. But they're starting to see really who Jesus is. Finally, the last point, and I'll hustle through this. We have the Savior who cares. He gets into the boat with them. Jesus gets into the boat. 
And when he does that, the wind ceases. He cares enough about these guys to get into the boat, to deliver them out of their situation. He could have walked off, but he wants to be with them. He cares about them. Their understanding is, is crucially important to him. But an even bigger point here is to be made about Jesus' heart of compassion. And it's seen when they arrive back to land. His ministry of, of healing immediately ramps up again. And these last several verses of the chapter, they are really just a summary statement of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. The entire region is impacted by the kindness and compassion of Jesus. Here we have the Lord of heaven, the guy, the, 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 the deity, the divine, who spread the stars and tramples upon the sea. He has lowered himself. He's identifying with the sick. He's touching the lowly. He's loving the needy. He's making whole those who have been cast out. He's caring. What a Savior we have. But I think the bigger reason Mark concludes this section with this, this sort of summary statement. He does it to reveal a contrast. He's revealing a contrast. Because in the last two miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the sea, the divinity of Christ is powerfully revealed. As powerfully revealed as we'll see anywhere. The Lord is amongst his people in the flesh. But the actions and the attitude of the crowd, that their prevailing behavior shows that they don't grasp it. They don't grasp the eternal spiritual significance of Christ's coming. They just continue to seek him for their physical needs. You see that? Let me ask you, what do you want from Jesus? What do you want from Jesus? Are you like the people of Galilee? You, you just want healing, you just want well-being, you just want wealth or, or, or prosperity. Is that what you want? Well, it's not what Jesus offers. He could give you that, sure, but, it, it, but it's temporary. All the people healed would eventually die. They're all going to get sick again, and, and, and they're going to die. What do, you, what do you seek from Jesus? Do you just come to him for a fix, for a bailout, for him to just make your already pretty okay life just a little better or easier or more manageable? Take care of this pain or this disease or this person or this checkbook balance? Is he just a means to an end for you? Is that how you come to Jesus? Or do you come to him for life? Do you want from Jesus what he really has come to bring? Do you come to him for life, eternal life? When you see him, are you astounded? Because if you're just using him to sort of prop up your comfort, to sort of just inspire you for the next hour or so, you're not coming to him for why he came. He came to give you life. Do not harden your hearts to that truth. But see Jesus for who he is. See him passing by. See the glory revealed and have the conclusion that there is life. That is the only place where I can have eternal satisfaction and joy 
and meaning. There is life. That's what we have in him providing the bread and then revealing himself to the disciples for who he really is. Ego a me, it is I. I am the Lord. Be not afraid. I am with you. Are you with Jesus? Is he in your boat? Is he providing you life? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and what you uh, deliver us, deliver to us through it. We thank you for this incredible account. And Lord, we just confess together that we need grace and we need your spirit's illumination and, and fully understanding all that is here. Fill in the gaps of this message this morning. Make your word plain and clear as we've studied it. And God, if there's anyone, anybody here that has sought you for the wrong reason or maybe not even sought you at all, but today you are passing by them, I pray that they would see you for who you are, that you would speak into their hearts, it is I, I am, I am life, eternal life, and that they would run to you for the satisfaction that you provide. Lord, thank you for this, this people that have gathered today. Bless them as they continue in worship and as they go from this place, calling others to worship you as well. It's in Christ's name. Amen.